Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do a great job. And you can find out more by visiting johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz, and Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture, and the author of several books, his latest, What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. It is August the 4th, and on this day in 1944, acting on a tip from a Dutch informer, the Nazi Gestapo, Gestapo captured 15-year-old Jewish diarist Anne Frank and her family in a sealed-off area of an Amsterdam warehouse. The Franks had taken shelter there in 1942 out of fear of de- deportation to a Nazi concentration camp. They occupied a single space with another Jewish family and a single Jewish man and were aided by Christian friends who brought them food and supplies. Anne spent much of her time in the so-called secret annex working on her diary. The diary survived the war, overlooked by the Gestapo. They discovered the hiding place, but Anne and nearly all of her others perished in the Nazi death camps. Uh, She was born in Frankfurt, uh, Germany, on June the 12th, 1929. She was the second daughter of Otto Frank and Edith Frank Hollander, both of Jewish families that had lived in Germany for centuries. With the rise of Nazi leader Adolf Hitler in 1933, Otto moved his family to Amsterdam to escape the escalating Nazi persecution of Jews. In Holland, he ran a successful spice and jam business and attended Montessori School and other middle-class Dutch children uh, with other middle-class children, but uh, school with but uh, with the uh, German invasion of the Netherlands in 1940, she was forced to transfer to a Jewish school. In 1942, Otter began arranging a hiding place in the annex of his warehouse on Prinzengrat Canal in Amsterdam. I visited the, uh, their home. <clears throat> on uh, the 13th, or her 13th birthday in 1942, Anne began a diary relating her everyday experiences, her relationship with family and friends, and observations about the increasingly dangerous world around her. Less than a month later, Anne's uh, older sister, Margot, received a a call-up notice to report to a Nazi work camp. Fearing deportation to Nazi concentration camp, the Frank family took shelter in the secret annex the next day. One week later, they were joined by Otto Frank's business partner and his family. In November, a Jewish dentist, the eighth occupant of the hiding place, joined uh, the group as well. For two years, Anne kept a diary about her life in hiding that is marked with uh, poignancy, humor, and insight. The entrance to the secret annex was hidden by a hinged bookcase, and former employees of Otto and other Dutch friends delivered them food and supplies procured at high risk. Anne and other friend, uh, others lived in rooms with blacked-out windows and never flushed the toilet during the day out of fear their presence would be detected. In June 1944, Anne's spirits were raised by the uh, Allied landings at Normandy, and she was hopeful that the long-awaited liberation of Holland would begin soon. On August the 1st, 1944, Anne made her last entry into the diary. Three days later, 25 months of seclusion ended with the arrival of the Nazi Gestapo. Anne and the others had been given away <clears throat> by an unknown informer, and they were arrested along with two Christians who had helped shelter them. They were sent to a concentration camp in Holland, and in September, Anne and most of the others were shipped to Auschwitz, the death camp in Poland. In the fall of 1944, when the Soviet liberation of Poland underway, uh, Anne was moved with her sister to a Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in Germany. Suffering under the deplorable conditions of the camp, the two sisters caught typhus and died in February 1945. The camp was liberated by the British less than two months later. So sad. Otto Frank was the only one of the ten to survive the Nazi concentration camps. After the war, he returned to Amsterdam via Russia and was reunited with uh, one of his former employees who had helped shelter him, she handed him Anne's diary, which she had found undisturbed after the Nazi raid. In 1947, Anne's diary was published by Otto in the original Dutch, an instant bestseller and eventually translated to more than 70 languages. 
The diary of Anne Frank had served as a literary testament to the nearly six million Jews, including Anne herself, who were silenced in the Holocaust. The Frank family hideaway at uh, Prinzengrat 263 in Amsterdam opened as a museum in 1960. A new English translation of the diary was published in 1945, restoring most of the original material, making it nearly a third longer. Uh, what an interesting read, too. She's a little girl. She was uh, making the best of her life under these horrible conditions. The Diary of Anne Frank. Well, <clears throat> this is a, a uplifting story. It's all over the news now. American wrestler Tamara Tam- uh, Mesa Stock has gone viral as she expressed her love for the United States in an interview following an historic Olympic win, which saw her secure a gold medal in the 68K final over Blessing Obaduro, or I can't pronounce that name, of Nigeria. An emotional Mensa stock draped the American flag over her shoulders and she took questions from reporters after completing her stunning run in Tokyo by beating this woman in the final of the women's freestyle light heavyweight category. Mensa stock on Tuesday made history as the first black woman to, to do that. The American flag around your shoulders looks pretty good, the reporter said to the Olympic gold medalist. How do you feel to represent your country like this? It feels amazing, she said. I love representing the United States. I'm freaking loving it here, and I'm so happy I get to represent the USA, she responded, wrapping the flag around her closer to her body. I love it, she said. The American overpowered Rio 2016 champion Sarah Dosho of Chavan and Ukraine's 2018 world champion en route to the final. It feels amazing, and I'm not uh, trying not to cry, she said. I want to go to a hide, <clears throat> go hide in a room, but people keep pushing me to places. It's a dream come true. I know from the beginning that I could be an Olympic champion. It was a scary thought, but I knew it was achievable. The 28-year-old told reporters she was nervous before the competition, but had confidence in her faith and her training. It's by the grace of God that I'm here even able to even move my feet, she said. I, I leave it in his hands, and I just pray all the practice the coaches might put me through the pays off, and every single time it does, I get better and better, and it's so weird that we're... There's no cap to the limit of what I can do. I'm excited to see what I can do next. She is told reports she plans to share her $37,500 winnings, which is news to me. I didn't realize that Olympics won money. Olympians. Anyhow, she's going to share it with her mother to help her achieve her dream. I want to give my mom $30,000 so she can get a food truck. It's her dream. She said, my mom's getting her food truck. She's going to have a little cooking business. She can now really, really, really cook well barbecue. I don't eat it because I'm a pescatarian now, she said. Anyhow, what a refreshing story, huh? And it was, uh, I've now seen it on TV. It's just amazing, this, the story of this woman. So proud to be an American and so humble in her victory. Not like the gold for kneelers, the U.S. women's soccer team, who was knocked out of the Olympics by Canada in a one to nothing defeat. America-hating anthem kneeler Megan Rapahoe was in tears following the U.S. women's shocking loss to Canada. They're going to go for the bronze. Uh, she'll soon be a footnote in history. Well, this story is so interesting. Ron Watkins, Code Monkey Z, released several photocopies of uh, Monday released to him from an alleged Dominion voting system employee. There's a whistleblower here in Dominion voting system. The documents prove that Dominion had remote access to their equipment during the elections. On Tuesday, Monkey Z published the video that proves that Dominion CEO John Polis lied under oath about the remote access. It's a pretty explosive development. It should, and it, this is, of course, one machine, but uh, I'm sure all the machines had this access. And uh, <clears throat> again, demonstrates the election was stolen. And uh, China had a big part in it. President Joe Biden said, Bunder, uh, said that New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, a fellow Democrat, should resign from his office following a state attorney general report that alleged he uh, engaged in a pattern of sexual harassment and intimidation that violated state and federal laws. I think he should resign, Biden said on Tuesday afternoon during a conference, adding that the state legislature may decide to impeach him. A number of other New York Democrats, including the state's congressional de- delegation, called on Cuomo to step down. But in response to the Attorney General's report, Cuomo released a video himself denying the allegations and remained defiant against calls for his ouster. I never touched anyone inappropriately or made inappropriate sexual advances, said Cuomo in a pre-recorded video. It included photos of him kissing and hugging people of all sorts. 
It came after New York Attorney General Letitia James, also a Democrat, said in a lengthy report that he engaged in sexual harassment in his chamber and mishandled allegations against him. Now, Letitia James herself, now she wants to run for governor as well, as most attorney generals do. Uh, attorneys general, I should say. So uh, anyhow, she, those are the findings. She didn't press any charges, and she's not going to, but apparently the uh, attorney general, district attorney's office in Albany is investigating criminal uh, charges, according to a statement on Tuesday. So uh, <clears throat> I think basically politically, this is a political move. They just want Cuomo out. He's uh, going to be a, a, a smear on the ticket. And uh, I think they'd like to just have him in the past so they can deal with the elections in 2022 without uh, his scourge and those charges. Uh, interesting that Greg Kelly last night said that he thinks that this is a, <laughs> this is a, a smear job on, uh, on him, on Cuomo. And she said he read through the report himself, all of it, and he said that, that uh, the allegations were pretty benign in his, uh, in his thoughts. So interesting. Too much politics and all this. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to visit with Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harton, the host of the Bob Harton Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabee's.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shop center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. You can download the app by going to the website choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with uh, Professor Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy, constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We're a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., and focused on private property and free markets and securing individual rights and limited government, C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. 
Thank you, Bob. And uh, we would, uh, after a little hiatus of talking about the last Supreme Court session, we were talking about the differences between conservative and liberal judges on the Supreme Court and the way they apply the Constitution. Did Obama have much of an impact on federal judges and Supreme Court justices? Uh, not on the ideological mix of the court. Uh, we had liberal justice Sonia Sotomayor selected by Obama to replace David Souter, but David Souter was also liberal. And then we had another liberal, Elena Kagan, who replaced liberal John Paul Stevens. So the ideological mix wasn't changed. It was the replacement of older liberals with younger liberals. Uh, that has a an effect, of course, because it preserves uh, a liberal mix on the court for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking back, though, he had a Obama had a significant impact on the composition of the trial courts and the appellate courts. Uh, before Obama, ten of the thirteen appellate courts had GOP appointed majorities. Um, post Obama, nine out of thirteen have Democratic appointed majorities. Wow. Um, Obama appointed 55 appellate judges in eight years. That's about a third of the total. And those courts are very important. They, those appellate courts decide about 3,000 cases each year. Only like 65 to 70 of those cases typically make it to the Supremes, even though there are like 8,000 cert petitions. But the Supremes only take about 65 or 70 cases each year. So it turns out that the appellate appointments are critically important. Absolutely. So uh, how do we contrast Trump? And he appointed three Supreme Court justices. Did he also influence the trial and appellate courts? Yep. He appointed 54 appellate uh, judges, uh, 55 for Obama, um, and 174 district judges. Um, That's a whole lot. Three Mm -hmm. circuits reverted to Republican majorities under uh, Trump. So he did have uh, a a sizable impact, in addition to, of course, the three Supreme Court justices. So, you know, if you like the notion of textualists who are anchored and bound by the written words of the founding documents, then Trump's uh, nominees were your cup of tea. If you prefer this living constitution that can be manipulated by empathetic judges who have a social consciousness, then Trump was a big problem. I think you have have uh, empathy and a social consciousness without, <laughs> but not have it applied to the law. So anyway. right, yeah, it's a, it's a great uh, characteristic for a judge or a justice, but it is not a basis upon which you can determine the meaning of the Constitution. Yeah, thank you, Bob. So when liberals and conservatives talk about confirming new judges, both groups condemn judicial activism. What exactly do they mean by judicial activism? Well, in a nutshell, it means intervention by the courts. I mean, either to do what the legislature didn't do or to overturn what the legislature did do. So, of course, the question is whether judicial activism is bad. And the answer Sorry to equivocate, but the answer is yes and no. Um, On the good side, judicial activism may be appropriate as a means to protect rights that the legislature did not protect. That's precisely what judges are supposed to do. So if somebody's constitutional rights have been violated and the legislature hasn't stepped in to stop the violation, then the courts can do that, and they should do that. Mm -hmm. And again, on the good side, judicial activism may be appropriate when a judge overturns an unconstitutional enactment of a legislature, judges have a responsibility to invalidate all the laws that don't conform uh, to the Constitution. Mm-hmm. The courts would be derelict if they endorsed these unconstitutional acts merely because they're passed by elected representatives. But there is a bad side, and that is judicial activism would not be appropriate if a judge were to overturn a law simply because. As a policy matter, the judge disapproved of the, of the outcome uh, because unlike a legislator, a judge is supposed to apply the law and not impose policy preferences uh, by creating new law. So interesting. Thank you for that explanation. Has uh, judicial activism been a problem over the years? Well, during, you know, during the Warren Court era, <clears throat> when the justices sort of protected 
all sorts of supposed rights that aren't in the Constitution, like the right to welfare, for example. Uh, but since the framing era, the Supreme Court has overturned about 150 acts of Congress and about 1,200 state municipal laws. So, of course, I haven't looked at each of those, but I'm pretty confident that those of us who are interested in limited government and expanding individual liberty, we've been pretty much well served <clears throat> by the court's invalidation of mostly oppressive laws. Uh, and our system of checks and balances provides lots of remedies for when, when judges overreach. We have, of course, the confirmation process. We have impeachments. We have restrictions on what the court has jurisdiction over. Uh, Congress or the legislatures can pass new legislation that satisfies the court. There's prosecutorial discretion and enforcement. And, of course, the ultimate remedy is a constitutional amendment. Now, I, I should add, though, that there's another remedy I think we ought to consider, and that is either term limits for justices or a mandatory retirement age. And I think that would serve three purposes. It, it would prevent concentrations of power on the bench. It would remove the guys who are no longer performing effectively. And it would depoliticize this dysfunctional confirmation process by spreading the appointments uh, among presidents of different parties. So if we had, for example, an 18-year term with staggered expirations for the nine justices, that would mean one justice would be replaced every two years, and it would give each president an opportunity to appoint two justices during his four-year uh, presidency. Hmm. That would depoliticize the process and be a good thing. Oh, that's such an interesting idea. So how do libertarians view the proper role of judges differently than, say, uh, conservatives? Well, the judiciary in the libertarian view shouldn't be active. It shouldn't be passive. It should be vigorously engaged in securing our rights and limiting government power. So there are, current, there are some conservatives <clears throat> who fear too much judicial activism, and they demand that the courts defer maybe rubber stamp is a more accurate uh, term, rubber stamp the decisions of Congress and the state legislatures. So the conservatives favor judicial restraint mm -hmm. when the courts are asked to overturn certain laws. The problem is that blanket judicial deference to the legislature effectively it removes the courts from this system of checks and balances designed by the framers to prevent the abuse of power. So that, that's one reason the government at all levels has grown in surprisingly and really unchecked ways at the expense of individual rights. So engagement, I think, is the proper uh, middle ground. Not active, not passive, but actively engaged. I could certainly support that. Bob Levy, again, the chairman of the Cato Institute, I encourage you to visit cato.org, C-A-T-O, Bob, really refreshing to have this conversation without politics involved. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you, Bob. My pleasure indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Andy Joppa. Andrew Joppa is a professor and author of Josephus of Oz. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. 
Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of 1st Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. Exciting things happening, building that performing arts center in downtown Naples. You can find out about performances and a lot more. Go to golfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. So I understand you've uh, finished a couple of books about China. Maybe you could tell us about it. Well, it's the summer. I do a lot of reading, and I try to make it as focused as I can for, for purpose. Let me just start out with some good news, which is uh, what I try to do every Wednesday with you. Uh, first of all, Mike Carey uh, in Ohio won his Republican primary. He was, uh, was a very uh, uh, contested primary, and Trump backed Mike Carey, and Mike Carey won that primary. It's not a huge deal, but it I think it, it does reflect that uh, Trump has an, an incredible amount of ongoing strength in the, in the Republican Party. I think that's that's obvious, but uh, sometimes we can see it, as with the Mike Carey election. Uh, the DOJ also indicates that the John Durham report, special counsel John Durham report, uh, will be made public. Now, I'm not sure about the implications of that. Of course, it depends on the content, uh, but there are possibilities that that Durham report will be. Uh, expose many of the irregularities that took place during the uh, period of 2016, late 2015, in terms of the, uh, the, the Trump process, and also during the, uh, the, the, um, the process of uh, trying to damage him through the Congress. So uh, th those are two uh, pieces of good news that uh, I think are, are worth considering right now. Bob. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I'll, uh, Kerry actually uh, did win uh, that, uh, I guess it's a primary that he won. Yeah, but yes. it, it's a foregone conclusion, though, that he'll be elected because it's a very strong Republican area. But George Soros had two candidates <laughs> who are pretending to be uh, Republicans running in that. One dropped out, so he got another one. Did you know that? I don't think I did know that. Yeah, it's, it's, I hate to admit that, but I don't think I did. Well, no, here's the thing. It's so interesting that this is now the new strategy is uh, uh, sheep and, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, you know, running as a as a Republican and trying to win the election. It's just amazing. Well, I, I think we really have to be uh, fully aware as, as Republicans right now as to the potentials that exist, especially through the Soros or Soros type of impacts that, uh, that are taking place. And you're pointing out one that I was not aware of, but I'm not surprised to hear that, Bob. Yeah. So. Uh, I think we have to become more astute as voters and people assessing the uh, the candidates that we're that we're looking at and voting for. So, yeah, absolutely. thanks for that. that. Thanks for the information. Oh, well, absolutely. Well, uh, the point is, we all need to be engaged and informed of what's going on. Don't take things on face value. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I once had a a very strong position that I would vote for any Republican over any Democrat. Um, that, that still has a 99% degree of truth. But uh, I think right now we have too many Republicans that are writing that kind of commitment uh, to absurdity in their, in their political process. We could point out Mitt Romney, Lisa, Mc Lisa Murkowski, and so forth. 
these are people that uh, know that they're not in tremendous fear of losing their office, uh, especially in the general elections, because of exactly what I just said, mm-hmm. is that there is a commitment to the numbers that are necessary to uh, control Congress and control re- uh, Washington in general. Uh, but right now, I think we have to start considering, do we do we really want to vote for someone like a Mitt Romney? I, I think it's a difficult decision, but I think we have to start considering uh, other issues other than the pure uh, numbers issue as it pertains to Washington, Bob. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So well, tell us about these books. I'm curious. Uh, well, let me just make one other point before we go on. There's a, uh, there's a, a new documentary out uh, called Fallen Angel. It deals with the, uh, the killing, I would call it, the assassination of uh, uh, SEAL Team uh, 6 members in Afghanistan following the, uh, the bin Laden um, uh, killing. Uh, in Afghanistan, uh, in Pakistan, rather, I'm sorry. Um, and I think it, it exposes and brings back to mind all the irregularities that, that existed pertaining uh, to that helicopter uh, being shot down and the potential that these SEAL Team 6 members were actually assassinated in the helicopter prior to the helicopter going down. Now, those are all conspiratorial type of thoughts. But the fallen angel just resurrects a wealth of information huh. uh, that points out the anomalies of that uh, of that SEAL Team Six uh, catastrophe that took place in uh, in Afghanistan. So I, I just want to mention that to your to your uh, to your listeners, Bob. Uh, in terms of a couple of books, I, I just uh, finished uh, one. I'll recommend not so much for its value as a novel, but for the learning exercise that it may provide your your listeners it's a it's a book by lawrence tierney it's called the currency wars and if someone is looking to get a uh, a deep immersion in the understanding of international economics and finance particularly as it pertains to the uh, battles between the united states and china uh, tierney does an excellent job with that process uh, again, I wouldn't recommend it as a novel, but I would recommend it as a learning exercise. Mm-hmm. I think far more important than the the currency wars by Tierney uh, is a book I just finished called "You Will Be Assimilated: China's Plan to Sinoform the World." And this has been written by David Goldman. Uh, David Goldman writes under the the pseudonym Spengler uh, for the Asian Times. Uh, Spengler is, is chosen as a pseudonym. It refers to Oswald Spengler, Spengler, who wrote a book in the early part of the 20th century called The Decline of the West. Um, what Goldman functions on primarily, the functions in regards to primarily, is an understanding as to what causes the decline of nations. And I've been reading uh, Goldman for, for many years. Uh, he is as reliable and quality a source of information uh, hmm. as you can possibly have. He's had a deep immersion, particularly in China, in terms of understanding that nation. Uh, and his book, You Will Be Assimilated, uh, talks about the, the current state of, of China uh, as it pertains to its projected future uh, in in dominating the world. It will not, he projects it not as a takeover per se, but as he describes it, an assimilation. Will they take take over all of the control points in the world, Bob? And the control points he defines as being uh, eventually taken uh, in control by uh, the, 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 the Chinese growth in 5G technology, robotics, artificial intelligence, uh, cryptography. Uh, and so he, he lays out clearly uh, the danger that we face from uh, China's expansion in those areas, the, the high-tech areas. Now, what we find in America all too often are one of two types of people, either people that are apologists for China, vis-a-vis the New York Times, who consistently denied the possibility of COVID-19 coming out of the Wuhan labs, or those people that are apologists for, essentially apologists for America, in the sense that they want to make our position uh, stronger than than it really is. For example, uh, Stephen Moore, recent economist uh, working with the Trump administration at that point, uh, Stephen Moore recently wrote a, uh, an essay for the uh, Wall Street Journal that appeared in the Epic Times, where he talks about the American tech sector keeps blowing away the rest of the world. He builds this entirely on the amount of investment uh, in the, the high-tech companies that exist uh, in the in the American investment market, uh, as and he, but he totally ignores, as far as I'm concerned, the tremendous rapid growth of 
of, of Chinese investment in, uh, in quantum uh, computing in the area of 5G. Uh, and that is where China is focusing itself to be able to control, as they say, the, the control centers of world economics and world political decision making, Bob. So interesting. Uh, you may have heard that uh, the Chinese uh, uh, Communist Party uh, just uh, <laughs> got rid of uh, $400 billion of, uh, of U.S. investment. So he you know, basically just said that, that, that that value doesn't exist anymore. Woof, it's gone. And it was invested in CalPERS and all kinds of different pension funds. So uh, it's a big deal. And uh, so what you see there is the manipulation of markets and currencies uh, they don't necessarily follow the rules. Well, I think we have to get into what you just said as a, as a mindset, Bob. We have to realize, because we consistently try to position China within a Western, <clears throat> a Western model, and that's just totally not valid. For example, we talk about the brutality of the, of the current regime, the CCP uh, is the current regime, uh, and totally ignoring that during the entire 5,000-year history, the controlling regime in China has always been brutal. This is the way China has operated. Mm -hmm. the, the, the Chinese people do not have a reverence for the CCP. While we regard the Chinese people as being part of a collective, we totally lose track of the fact that there is a tremendous personal incentive for, for personal growth. We've seen that, uh, for example, in the American um, uh, universities, where we have 5.6% of our uh, of our population is Asian, and 26% of our people being accepted to the elite colleges are, are Chinese. Wow. Uh, now, if we translate that into a nation with a billion, 400 million people, and understand the tremendous academic uh, accomplishments and work ethic of the Asian, and particularly the Chinese, I think we have to appreciate the nature of the, uh, let's call it the adversary that we're currently looking at. And this tendency to, to diminish China or to try to interpret it always within Western models uh, is just is just a, a dangerous phenomenon, Bob. And I think we're going through that right now. Yeah, it's such an interesting point, of course. And now we're all beginning to scratch our heads and, and second guess exactly what is going on, because you're right. We process it all around our own mental maps, which is more you know, uh, honesty and <laughs> truthfulness and uh, dealing with other people in, in a forthright manner. Uh, that's just not the way it's played there. The, the Chinese party, they don't necessarily represent the Chinese people. They simply are a, uh, uh, a, a they are a, uh, they've, they weaponize government, basically, is what they're doing. They're a, a criminal enterprise. Well, Goldman would make the point that the Chinese citizens care very little about the CCP. They don't dislike them or like them. They don't care about them. Uh, that isn't where the Chinese focus is. The Chinese focus, the citizenry of China, is on their culture. And that culture is 5,000 years old. It has been, in most of its heyday, extremely productive. The problem with China historically has always been its internal uh, problems, the great floods, the great droughts, which have always caused them to focus internally. At this point, uh, the, uh, China has totally gotten those internal dilemmas under control. So at this point, for the first time in China's history, they're able to focus their attention externally. And that's what we're seeing right now. Mm. If we look at Huawei, the, uh, the, I think the dominant tech company in the, in the world, 50,000 employees, but not only Chinese people, not only are they harvesting the best of the, the Chinese high-tech graduates from their universities and our universities, but they're also harvesting uh, Western uh, ideal, uh, ide um, uh, graduates from our best universities. Mm. So Hawaii is beginning and will, I think, continue to dominate the high-tech world into the future as, as it all unfolds, Bob. That's so interesting. It's so ironic that they pr pretty much stole most of the intellectual property from us, and now they've, uh, in some ways, perfected it for their own use. It's kind of interesting. Hey, you well, there, there's no doubt. I mean, China is, is not stupid. If you can access technology that already exists and you don't have to invest in doing it other than uh, you know, pushing aside the immorality or illegality of it, and China is certainly more than willing to do that, why not harvest those technologies, particularly when American companies to do business there are more than willing to not only have it stolen in most ca or many cases, but to willingly give it to China in, in most cases, Bob. Yeah. 
So you wrote a really interesting piece. I actually published it on my blog on, on my website uh, last night, Defanging the Enemy. Maybe you could tell us about it. Well, it's, it deals primarily with uh, two different views of the, the, the vaccines. There, there is the, the medical issue of, of, the, of, of vaccines, and there's also the political issue. Uh, I have and, and have harbored for many months now uh, the feeling that the COVID-19 problem and its Delta variant at this point will be extended at least through the 2022 elections, uh, which will enable the, the left to create the same um, suspect forms of voting that existed in the 2020 elections. So I think that is the, the political implication of it. Uh, toward that end, and let me just, uh, I just read this this morning, uh, at this point, the most recent analysis of the, uh, the uh, nations where the uh, COVID-19 is the most uh, rapidly spreading are the nations that have been the most vaccinated. This, again, throws a, a, a confusion into this model right. that is that is dramatic. I mentioned to you last week that uh, the Israeli studies and the Pfizer studies themselves said that after six months, the, the vaccine loses a lot of its, its effectiveness. So uh, we're in this confusing area. The point I make with defanging the left is that, first of all, the government has not earned the appropriate trust necessary to mandate that vaccination take place. That is just something they have to, to mandate that. There has to be a high degree of trust that is not in place. The question is, what should others do in terms of, of, of uh, getting the vaccination? Um, I suggest in defanging the enemy that we should get the vaccination other than uh, in the circumstance of a person who has previously had COVID or people who are under the age of 18 where that should still be controlled by the, uh, by the, by the parents. The reason I say that, Bob, is because I think to the degree that there is an active resistance from the right to the vaccination, to that degree, the left will gain extra strength in creating voting irregularities in 2022, which will, I, I think, not uh, stand us well uh, in terms of the, the election results uh, that will take place in the midterm, Bob. See, that's such an interesting point of view. I, I would suggest, that in, <clears throat> my focus is on this, uh, the reason we don't have therapeutics promoted here in this country and around the globe is because it would uh, defang uh, the uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies. In other words, the, the whole notion of having an emergency approval by the FDA of these uh, different drugs, of these uh, vaccines, would go away if we had uh, uh, therapeutics that worked. And so uh, I would like to see, what I would like to see is instead of uh, getting vaccinated, I'd like to see therapeutics that work promoted here in the United States, so the people could uh, take the therapeutics if they get ill, or uh, if they, uh, if or even some sort of pre preventive thing that could perhaps uh, fend off. Which I understand, by the way, hydroxychloroquine actually does. It does. It's it's proven to be very effective in many uh, in many circumstances. It's also proven to be very effective over its, uh, I, I believe, fifty year lifespan, where it's been widely used for other other indications. Uh, if we look at ivermectin, it's also so this gets back to my my original point as I started talking about this. Uh, I think if the issue was entirely medical, then as you're suggesting, Bob, I think there would have been a movement towards hydroxychloroquine and I, ivermectin yep. uh, because they're not. I think that their decision making model is political. Uh, I think you're mm -hmm. also right that it, it also pertains to the to the pr incredible profit motive for Pfizer with also some uh, continuing talks about the possibility of, uh, of a, a booster shot or even a, a third injection in the original series. Uh, and the money being made by Pfizer is dramatic. But I think uh, it's hard to differentiate between that motive by Pfizer and the people that gain from Pfizer's profits, such as, uh, as Anthony Fauci, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, and the political motive, which is to sustain the, uh, the existence of this, this pandemic. Uh, and it's certainly not a virulent pandemic, and the, the Delta variant is not virulent at all uh, until the 2022 elections. And so my point in defanging the enemy was to try to minimize uh, the strength the left has in using the pandemic 
going into those midterm elections. Yeah. Bob. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, you can just start, school's about to start. So all of a sudden, hey, whoa, we, the Delta uh, variant, where did that come from? <laughs> so, you well, know. The, the, the most recent thing I've read on that Delta variant, and I, I don't know if it's, it's a valid uh, point of view, I think it's been somewhat documented, is that the Delta variant is entirely the end result of the vaccination process. In other words, it is the vaccination process that has allowed for that that mutation to take place in the virus that right now is is proving to be highly contagious. Although, as I said, not particularly virulent in its in its uh, in its um, its impact, Bob. So interesting. Thank you. Hey, before I let you go, uh, do you have want to make any comments about the Olympics or uh, Andy Com- Andrew Cuomo? Uh, <laughs> uh, Andrew Cuomo, I my, I have a question. I, I don't understand why the left is is going after Andrew Cuomo. I think they have a, you know, any moral person and legal person has the right to, but it seems somewhat out of keeping with the, the normalcy of the left to, to go after one of their primary candidates. Now they may identify him as, as so toxic that they, they have to shed him before the 2022 elections. Yeah, that's, that may that, be it. That's how I that's see it. That's my Andy. main confusion with, uh, with the Cuomo circumstance in terms of the Olympics. I, I think we're seeing, a variant of what I suggested before about how the United States, in many cases, tends to uh, process down the, the Chinese accomplishments. For example, if you look at this is not an important matter, but I think it's indicative of if we look at the medal count, the, the most of the United States press reports the United States leading in the medal count. Yep. In that counting, they give equal weight to silver and bronze medals right. with gold medals. Right. The Chinese are leading in the gold medals, 32 to 25. Now, the gold medal is who wins. So I, I think that, and again, I don't believe that's an important consideration other than an indication of how we often deal with trying to downplay the success uh, of the Chinese people and the Chinese government, Bob. So interesting. Again, Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. By the way, a great read, Josephus of Oz. I encourage you to get a copy. Andy, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob, and breakfast soon. Soon indeed. Thank you, Andy. Uh, breakfast with Andy is just as interesting as having him on the show. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with uh, Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulubee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-3889 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. 
And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. You can find out more by visiting vfga.org. We have with us Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in Space Architecture and author of many books, his latest, What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Well, good morning, Bob. Thank you uh, so much for having me on. Always a pleasure, Professor. And uh, you, you write your column for Newsmax. It's uh, On Point is the name of the column. It's more than a weekly occurrence. I think you mentioned last week that there's sometimes two or three uh, columns a week. Your latest is so interesting. Where will independents stand on midterm voting issues? You bring up so many interesting issues. I thought that I, we'd share it with uh, with our listeners. Yeah, I thought it was interesting when I, I did a little research for that article. And uh, first of all, we, we think of, of course, the, the two parties as being the whole story, the Republicans and the Democrats. And uh, we forget that uh, there's, you know, the, the Democrats, and these are my self-identified uh, surveys, mm-hmm. Uh the number of self-identified Democrats and self-identified Republicans is pretty close to, to even. Mm-hmm. Uh, but each of them is a minority compared to the independents. Independents are, are, are the big block. They're maybe um, 40% of the, of, the, uh, of, the, of the number. And then as you look at how they self-identify in terms of whether they're, you know, moderate or whether they fall strong in one side or the other uh, the uh, they, they tend to they tend to be by majority they call themselves moderate they think of themselves as moderate which I guess you could take as saying well a lot of them feel like they have kind of open minds they haven't declared for either party and and uh, the the majority of the Republicans self-identify as being Conservative, and the and the majority of Democrats also, rather than call themselves progressive, they tend to think of themselves as moderate. So, so there's that kind of suggests the fact that there's, you know, that middle America or you know, a lot of the voters tend to be uh, uh, kind of kind of moderate in their their thinking. Excuse me, that's my dog trying to edge in on the conversation here. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Uh, but uh, the uh, the upshot is when you look at the way the the Democrats are behaving, we think of the Biden administration and we think of the policies, I would argue, and I think a lot of people would agree with me, that uh, whereas Biden had run as a moderate, he's anything but that. He's very immoderate and, and heralded and, and Perhaps he identifies himself as the the next great FDR in terms of progressive policies, and even Bernie Sanders has been saying that you know he's he's the most progressive president we've had in years. Well, then, then you say, well, yeah, but how's that how's that working out? And in the article, I I list some key issues that I think are not uh, exclusively Democrat or. or or Republican issues, but they have to do with the, the kinds of things that I think are midterm issues. Midterm issues tend to be kitchen table issues. They tend to be state local things like how is this really a, how, how is the world affecting me? Mm-hmm. One of one of the interesting polls recently is that I think it was Rasmussen said and identified that um, the, the voters tend to be not very optimistic. About about the future of the country, and that's that's a big brown. That's a kitchen table issue. Saying, yeah. "Well, how does uh, you know how how's how's this working out so far in the first you know first uh, six months of the Biden administration?" And basically, that's saying, "Well, not so good." And the, the poll numbers have really been sinking quite dramatically very recently on on Biden's performance and. And perhaps even far worse for Kamala Harris, who they kind of see standing in the in the wings, standing behind the, the white you know Oval Office curtains, and 
and there's a number of issues. I think election integrity is something that's that's got a lot of people really concerned uh, because, uh, and that's kind of a state issue where the states are taking a lot of issue, a lot of initiative, and then you have, you know, the, the obvious lawlessness. We had all the you know, the riots and, and upheaval and and uh, anarchy last summer, burning and so on, and and uh, I think people sense that can come to their suburbs and that and you know amid calls for defunding police and right. that's not working out so great. So there's a lot of issues. I think even national pride where uh, you know we see the critical race theory in the 1619 project and the kind of Marxism that's marched into our K through 12 schools. They've been at the universities for some time, but you know parents don't want their, their kids brainwashed and they, and propagandize, and they and they want to get the kids back to school again, yep. without having the you know the teachers unions that when the the, you know, the Democrats uh, determining their, their you know their uh, those kind of issues. and and the border issue is kind of hard to conceal it, and it's there's an irony where at a time when we have a a COVID issue that and everybody's being lectured on masking up and getting shots and so on. You have literally, you know, nearly a couple hundred thousand border crashers just this last month mm-hmm. with no, there was no relief in sight that being to a bus to a you know, neighborhood near you. So all of these, all of these issues, energy policy, gas is going up. We shut down, he shuts down the Keystone pipeline for the U.S. along with Julian Anwar, but he, for some strange reason that nobody can figure out, he gives the Russians a pass to build their Nord Stream Two pipeline under the Baltic that'll double the you know the, the gas Russian gas supply to Germany, bypass Hungary, and Hungary will will uh, you know be left in the lurch and and uh, you know and on and on and on. Yeah. Uh, and on top of that, you've got the the kind of mental cognizance issue and the and the judgment issue and that's you know where the the gaps are more than gaps you know they're you know they're huge huge mental slips going between you know being pretty pretty lucid and then all of a sudden something comes out that you say oh my gosh where did that come from exactly so uh, it, it's kind of a long-winded explanation but that's what the article is about. Well, and most important is when you think about each of these issues, uh, they are, as you pointed out, they are bipartisan issues. Everybody should be concerned about these things. And uh, quite frankly, you know, going into the midterms, I just has, I, I can't see how the Democrats can sustain these their part or their stand on these issues unless, of course, they perpetuate COVID and uh, cheat on the election. <laughs> Well, I think they, I think they recognize that, and the way I see it, they know that, and I think they, I haven't heard anyone predict that the, uh, even the Democrats predict they're going to take the 2022 House election. Now, the Senate is another, another question, but the House is, is, seems to be pretty clearly lost, so it seems like in order to, and they, so, so they overreacted, I, I call it the Hill Mary strategy where they're trying to push through huge, you know, this AKA infrastructure package, which is social programs. And and it was Bernie Sanders this morning got this big pitch in the Wall Street Journal about why we should spend another three and a half trillion on top of the, you know, the the real infrastructure package, which may not even be that real. What? Yeah. More than 2,000 pages of legislation all kinds of surprises buried in that. So, so the uh, you know people are concerned about inflation, and they're and they see it. You know, they see it when they go to the store. They see it when they put gas in their car. And and I think you know people don't have to be economic geniuses to figure out when you open up the you know the presses and print more money, uh, it's going to you know it's going to drive the cost of hot dogs up. Absolutely, if you can even get them and. Uh, so we see inflation happening, and and of course, whether it's gas prices or whether it's food prices, it hits the 
it hits the rural people more, where transportation is more critical, and it hits the you know the poorest among us uh, in terms of the people living from paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. So I don't think it bodes well at all. Not not at all, Professor. It's just an interesting column. I refer our listeners to Newsmax.com. Just check out uh, Larry Bell's column on point. Where will independents stand on midterm voting issues? Uh, and also, uh, what makes humans truly exceptional? It's a great read. I encourage you to get a copy. What makes humans truly exceptional? Professor, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for the opportunity. My pleasure indeed. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Tomorrow, we're going to visit with Seton Motley, the founder and president of Less Government. Keith Law is the co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Uh, Bill Barnett is going to be back on the show, the former mayor of Naples, and Dr. George Markovich, orthopedic surgeon, will be with us as well. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>